morning. Good to see you. God bless. Uh, I'm going to read the scripture and pray, and we'll jump into our series. This is Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing in what you heard? Are you so foolish after being with the Spirit and are now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it is really, it really was for nothing. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, clearly, no one is justified before God because of the law. The righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us through Jesus Christ. So that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, these are mysterious words. And your word is living and it is breathing and it is true. And you have called us to be like Abraham this morning. To live by faith. You've also called your people to be separate, set apart, in this world, and not of this world. God, you have standards. Although we fall short of your standards each and every day, we know it is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we have the forgiveness of sins, and we can become better and better, more like Christ each and every day. So help us to do some deep work. Open our ears and our eyes, and most importantly, open our hearts to receive your word this morning. In your name, amen. All right. I have some visual illustrations today. You saw this guy on the video. So this is Moses. And if you have ever were in a Sunday school class that taught with flannel graphs, you know that this is Moses. 
but it's also Abraham, and it's also Isaiah, and any other of the major prophets, because when you're in the bin and you're digging around trying to find the character that you're supposed to teach with, uh, this is starting to look a lot like Abraham. Oh yeah, and I got my Pharaoh over here. So for the moment, let's just pretend that this is Abraham. We'll just take the staff off. And last week, we got to know a little bit about Abraham. And I didn't even get to the best part, did I? I didn't get to the core of the story. In fact, today, I'm supposed to cover some 500 years of biblical history in about 40 minutes. I don't know whose bright idea it was to do a survey of the Bible, everything I need to know I learned in Sunday school. I don't know whose bright idea it was. I think it was Jennifer's. <laughs> it actually was Jennifer's. <laughs> so, but yeah, this is going to be a monumental task for me to cover a lot of uh, material in a short amount of time. I can do it. I barely did it at first service, so I can do this. Now, as I'm going to be going over a little bit of Abraham and a lot of Moses uh, and then some of the guys in between, I'm going to leave out probably some of your favorite parts. Some of the most important parts of the story or the most impactful thing, chances are I'm going to have to skim over it because this is a survey and we want to get the big picture. Now, what I did, what I did leave off, again, we're talking about Abraham right now, Father Abraham and not Moses, what I did leave off last week was the binding and the sacrifice of Isaac. Did you guys, anybody catch that? I kind of missed the most important part, right? Well, I was saving it for today. This is a strange story. If you've been in Sunday school or if you've been around Christians or Jews, even Muslims, you know that this is a fundamental story in the, the giant narrative of God's story. And it's bizarre. Like, it's really weird. It's okay to think of it weird because it is kind of weird. But maybe we can get a better understanding of what is actually taking place. And it goes something like this. God gives Abraham an incredible promise. He promises him a people. He promises him a land. And he promises him an incredible blessing. And it doesn't look like the people thing is going to work out because it's just Isaac. And it doesn't look like the land thing is going to take place. And like, where's the blessing? Have you, ever, have you ever prayed those prayers before? Where's the blessing? And then the miraculous happens and Sarah at 100 gives birth to Isaac. It just doesn't make any sense. And the most weird, the weirdest thing is that God speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your only son. The one that, I want you to sacrifice the promise, which houses the blessing inside of the promise land. I want you to sacrifice the, I want, to, I want you to kill, I want you to murder your son for me. And that's a weird thing to think about outside of church context. Like, your non-believing atheists and secular friends, they hear this story and they're like, like, what's the matter with you people? Why do you find that that's a good story? Because it seems like your God is a little sadistic asking Abraham to murder his son. And you're like, yeah, that does seem kind of sadistic, but it's not. Well, I'll show you why. Abraham 
is the father of faith. He is what we need to aspire to. His faith is off the charts because in this moment, he did all the work. He's like, okay, God is telling me to kill my son to destroy the promise that he promised me. I wonder if he was thinking, okay, these voices in my head, are they really God? That's a good question for us to ask, okay? <laughs> Not that you want to murder your children, but on, other, on anything else that you might be thinking is God's voice. We need to do the work of Abraham and, and say, is God really saying this? This is such a big move for Abraham because the scriptures tell us that God is not the author of evil. So God will never tell you or lead you to do something outside of his laws or his, his statutes. He's not going to tell you to do something evil. Amen? Okay, just get that off the table right there. The interesting part about history is, is that men have used the Bible to do evil all throughout our history. It's interesting how they can pull that off. But God does, God's not the author of that. And yet, God is saying, okay, I want you to take this step of faith and I want you to kill your promise. Now, have anybody ever had God ask you to do something that you don't want to do? Can I get an amen? I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that. It's not in my wheelhouse, God. Please don't ask me to do something that is going to cost me something. I don't want to do it. Abraham took that leap of faith, and he, he builds the altar. He binds his son Isaac, whom he loves. And it, again, it is that, that leap of faith. He even raises the knife up to do the psycho moment, and the angel of God comes in and stops him. He says, you're worthy of this promise. You were willing to sacrifice because I asked. It's a big deal. It's a, it really is. It's a big moment. And regardless, it's like, why? But still, poor Isaac. I mean, poor little Isaac. Like, what did he do? I mean, could you imagine your, your father trying to murder you because God said so? I mean, that's, that, that's, that's some heavy stuff, right? Okay, if it helps at all. Uh, picture Isaac as being the worst kid you've ever met in your entire life. Like, he is, the, he is the biggest brat in all the universe. He deserves it. Like, he's been asking for this for a long time. That might help. There's more going on here than just Abraham having the faith to do what God asks. There's a deeper truth. There is a more profound and loving mystery that Abraham and Isaac, they get called to pull off the greatest sermon illustration in the world. Yeah, it's about Abraham's faith, but it's more about the ram. It's because God provides the substitute. He, let's just go there. That little wretch deserves to be murdered. But God provided the substitute, the sacrificial, in this case, ram. That idea 
of a substitutional sacrifice is a theme that we will see throughout the entirety of Scripture, and it is fundamental to our faith, and it is the key to your salvation that God substituted you for Jesus. That's the big picture we're going to be unfolding today. Abraham has his son Isaac. Doesn't, Isaac doesn't really do a whole lot. Again, we don't know that much about him. Again, you have to use your imagination. Um, yeah, let's just say that he deserved it. Anyway. Jacob, the grandchild, has 12 sons. And we begin to see God's promise of God's people begin to take place. We see the formation of through these 12 sons, the formation of God's kingdom administration. It is going to be structured through these 12. And we, we see the beginnings of a people inside of the promised land going after God's blessing. Things are looking good. Now, one of the characters that you don't see up here is the character of Joseph who was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And he was rotten. Like, he was a brat. And his brothers hated him. I mean, you think that God's family, they, they would be all like the perfect family. This is anything but the perfect family. And again, this is where we're going to skip over all the good stuff that you loved about Joseph. But his brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, in prison, in bondage. A slave and a prisoner to a Pharaoh. But God, in his ways, he has this intimate personal relationship with Joseph. And as Jennifer Jones was telling us, like sometimes God gives us dreams. He speaks to us in the night on what direction we are supposed to take, or even an idea of what the big picture is or what we need to do in order to be healed and fulfilled. God speaks to, dream, and to us in dreams, and, 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 and Joseph, was, he was the dream child. And through God inspiring him and giving him gifts, divinely opened doors, it eventually led for Joseph to be the right-hand man of Pharaoh. He was the viceroy of all Egypt. He was running the show. And he saves his family because he was running the show. Good, I'm skipping over all the really good stuff. But because of this favor, because of God's promises, they were blessed tremendously in the land of Egypt. Not their promised land, but they were receiving blessing. They were receiving information. They were, they were growing inside of God's will in Egypt. But then there was some type of a change in government. There was something that shifted. And the scriptures say that the pharaohs of old no longer looked at Joseph and his descendants with favor. And there was a, uh, 
There was a slow fade into sin. God's people, found, they wound up not running the show anymore. They wound up being slaves. Here's the fascinating thing about God's people becoming slaves. There was no battle. There was no fall. There was no defining moment that said, we're going to make this group of people slaves. No, there was a slow fade into sin. It was a little bit here and a little bit there, a compromise here and a falling away there. The truth of the matter is, God's people looked absolutely no different, at least in behavior, than the Egyptians. You couldn't tell the difference between the two. Maybe ethnically you could tell the difference, but they were acting the same. They were speaking the same. They were believing the same there was no difference between the two. And God's people, again, there was a slow fade into sin. They, they, they wound up being slaves. And they didn't even know how they got there. Can you relate to that? You find yourself in bondage, addicted to something, or in thought patterns. It's like, how did I get here? How did this happen to me? It's, it's little by little. There, usually there's no big giant moment when you, when you fall or when you slip. It's just a piece of chocolate here or there. It's National Donut Day. It's National um, Pie Day. It's National whatever. There's always an excuse to be bad, right? There's always an excuse. There's always a reason. There's always an exception why we become more like the culture that we are around. It just, it just seeps in. And we, we need a standard. We need a rule of law we need something. We, we need a divine word that makes us different than the world. Amen? Enter in. Okay, now this is Moses, okay? Enter in Moses, the lawgiver. The lawgiver. And he teaches us something very important about a standard and about a culture. He shows us what the culture of sacrifice really looks like. Okay, so again, you know the story. You know about the basket. You know that uh, you know, he tried to murder somebody. You know, he did murder somebody. You know that he fleed, and he ends up in Midian in the desert, and he has an encounter with God. This is my desire for all of you, is that each and every one of you have like one of these moments, these, one of these God moments. You all, everybody is, it, like the veil has been torn. It's, it, it's, it's for everybody, everybody. It's not just for me. We all have the right to walk into the presence of God, but there's conditions, folks. There are our conditions. God calls Moses into an intimate relationship via the burning bush. He makes this powerful declaration, I am who I am. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. Uh, this is going to be a wild ride. Are you on board? Moses says, yeah, I'm on board, let's go. And then, then God says, whoa now, son, stop right there. You can't even come into this place until you take those sandals off. This is holy ground. This is a sacred conversation we're having here. I mean business. And he takes his sandals off. And God begins to unveil his plan to save his people from bondage, from slavery. And it's like a big deal. Like, it's a, it's a heavy task. 
He's got to go back to Egypt. He's got to return to the land of his birth. He doesn't need to right now. Like, life is pretty good. He's got, you know, he's hanging out in the desert. He's got a decent job. His father-in-law is cool. He's got a beautiful wife. Everything's working out for him right now. He has no need to do this. And yet there is something that he can't deny the calling that's on his life, the mission that God has given him. And yet, he makes up some excuses. Ever make some excuses? But God, I can't do that. I can't act this way. I don't want to do this. God encourages him. So, you know, you can do this. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to give you the plan. You're just going to be my vehicle. Basically, you're just a water hose, and I'm going to be flowing through you. We can do this. And then he says, I don't know, God. How about if you just send somebody else? And then the Lord gently calls Moses over, and he says, okay, let's do some counseling. Tell me how you feel right now, Moses. Um, is there any training that I can give you or any special tools that, that maybe I could take you to, to speech class or something? I'm kidding around. I'm messing around. God doesn't do that at all. God gets angry at Moses because Moses is not following the call. Yeah? God gets angry. It's not the first time God gets angry at Moses, by the way. There's a pattern that, here that we, you read the scriptures, you'll see it's not the first time God loses it with uh, with Moses' stubborn behavior. And so finally Moses says, all right, let's do this thing. And you know the story of the plagues. Now we have the great con confrontation. He does go to Egypt. He does confront Pharaoh. This Pharaoh looks really nice and pretty. Like he's like a nice-looking guy. And he's gesturing royally. And uh, he seems like a benevolent despot. But he's not the biggest jerk in the world. We don't know which pharaoh it was. We're not exactly sure which time period we are talking about when we're in the Exodus. There's a bunch of different reasons, a different, bunch of different uh, opinions on actually when the Exodus took place. But what we do know is that this pharaoh that's engaging Moses, he's a bad guy. Amen? We even think most theologians and pastors think that he was so bad, in fact, that he was even quite possibly possessed by Lucifer himself. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of thinking that way. Regardless, what the story is telling us is that Moses is going to be, despite his flaws, he's going to be a Christ type. He's a type of Christ that points people to who Jesus is going to be because Jesus is going to set us free. So Moses is acting like Jesus, even though he doesn't want to, and his mission is to set people free. Likewise, Pharaoh is a satanic type because he's holding people in bondage with oppression, fear, and lies. Okay, read the story. You can clearly see that that's what's taking place. So see it as a conflict between two major powers, power of light versus the power of darkness. For those of you that were in Sunday school or saw the cartoon, you know it goes like this. Hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, that's wrong. It's completely wrong. Let my people go. Right? 
he says. No way, man. I need you guys to build my pyramids. It's not going to happen. Here's some frogs. Let my people go. Nah. I like my palaces. You guys are building them. Even if I let you go, you're going to starve to death in the desert. Begins the lies, right? And he says, even says this. It's hilarious. You guys are all a bunch of lazy Hebrews. Calls them, calls them, calls them lazy. Again, the Satan we're talking about. Loves to lie. We won't starve to death. God's going to give us manna from heaven, food from heaven. You don't want that. Stay in Egypt and they'll give you cotton candy. <laughs> All right. So, a lot of work for that one gag. I'm sorry. Uh, so this is what we hear. Let my people go. Sunday school and the cartoon. And it's true. He wants to set his people free. But there's more. There's way more to that story than just let my people go. There is some nuance. In this conversation, I think we're near the last plague. This is the plague of darkness. Like, they're going back and forth, back and forth. Frogs, flies, blood in the water, all kinds of hailstorms, fire, all kinds of crazy stuff. But it is the darkness that can be felt, a plague that comes in, darkness so thick that even people that can see can't see in front of their face. Terrifies him to the point where he's like, oh, man, this is tough. Moses says, let my people go. And in Exodus chapter 10, verse 25, it says, he, he continues, let my people go. Ready? You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to do something with them in worship, in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to do to use them in worshiping the Lord. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me. The day that you see my face, you will die. Again, more lies, yeah? Moses replied, all right, man, I'm out. We're going. You see, it's not just let my people go. It's not just let my people be free. It's like, we need to go into the desert, men, Women, children, our resources. God is calling us to go into the desert to sacrifice. And I don't know if you caught this. They don't even know how to do it. At this point in the game, there's no Bible. There's no Ten Commandments because he writes them later. There's no written word of God. There's, there's no, they don't know who they are because they've got nothing to bounce it off of. Again, they're a bunch of Hebrews that act like Egyptians. They, they don't, they don't, they've lost their identity. And God is calling them into a desert season 
for them to sacrifice with their families makes it very important that clear that like all we're all going into the desert we're all going to do this thing together so yes it is about freedom but it is equally about sacrifice i think naturally we can understand the concept of sacrificing for something. Yeah? Right? You know that nothing is easy in this life, and if you really want something, you'll have to sacrifice to get it. There are no, well, I'm going to behave myself politically. Could you imagine? Look at this. Practicing the spiritual gift of self-control here. Wow. So proud of myself. All right. There are no free handouts. Amen? Everything has a price tag attached to it. Now, life is, it, life is filled with trade-offs, right? You're getting through life, you know you, there's trade-offs. I want this, so I got to do that. I want to be here, so I got to do this. I want this person to like me, so I do this. And so we understand that there are trade-offs in order just to get by in life. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get tired of living in a constant state of trade-offs. I want to trade up. Yeah? I want to trade up. I want to bump up to the next level. Trade-offs come and go. You can do those inside of your own abilities and your own skills. But if you want a trade-up, it requires sacrifice. You have to be willing to sacrifice something and Moses begins to teach this and instill this into his people from day one. Set my people go so that we can develop a culture of sacrifice. Now, the sacrifice does get weird. He develops a culture of sacrifice, but then he also begins to write down and instill and incorporate the law, the written word of God. So this is a, this is a law that is going to help a people group. It's going to train them. They are going to live it out in an active uh, lifestyle of sacrifice. They're killing everything. They're killing sheep and goats and pigeons and oxen, and they're doing all this stuff in, to help them with their relationship with God. And the law is doing something very unique and, and special. It is like the Ten Commandments. You know, don't murder, honor your mom and dad, don't have any other foreign gods before me. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. And I mean, it's kind of honestly, the Ten Commandments is basic no-dust stuff. It is moral law that needs to be written down. Yeah? Like, you know you're not supposed to murder. But maybe if you do want to murder somebody and you do it, we have this ability to lie to ourselves you're like, well, it's not in the rule book. It wasn't written down anywhere, so I guess it's okay. Yeah, we do these things. So it gets written down. The moral law gets spelled out crystal clear on what we're supposed to do and not do. And like for us, it kind of seems like, yeah, no doubt, like we should be lying and stealing and cheating. That's not good. But for them, I think they probably needed it. It gets written down. It's crystal clear. But there were some more things that the law was there to do that was vitally important because 
Again, they had a people that looked like, that looked like pagans, acted like pagans, worshipped like pagans, thought like pagans, believed like pagans. They looked like them. And they needed to separate them culturally. And so there's all these really weird laws that they don't make any sense to us. You can't have tattoos. You can't have short hair. So like I've already blown a law this week, right? We've got to... Like all of us guys that got a haircut this week, we've all, we just, we've sinned in the sight of the Lord, and we've got problems, and we've broken the law. But they needed it. They needed it to look different than the people around them. They needed to act different. Their language even needed to be different. They needed to be in that world, but not of the world. And so that served a vital importance in saying, this is who you are, and when you don't do this, you are looking and acting like they do. Okay, so that's one of the purposes of the law. And another great purpose of the law is just hygiene. Like, there was a medical reason for all of this stuff. I mean, you know this to be true. Guys are kind of gross, right? Guys, boys, men, like, like if, if we don't have a, a gal telling us, to do stuff like it's, it could be bad. So you think that modern men are gross? Ancient men were really, really gross. And so there were all of these sanitary health laws, frankly, that literally saved a culture. And it is no mistake that the Hebrew culture and Jewish people are still going on today. Everybody else got weird social diseases and died. But the Jewish people are still here. Purpose of this. One of the purposes of the law. So Moses does something very, very important when he institutes the break from bondage into freedom, saying you can't be truly free unless you learn to sacrifice. Yeah? You guys see that? You can't be... You can't be free from this tyrant unless you learn to sacrifice, to live sacrificially. Because if you don't, in some way, that, that slow fade back into sin will just creep right back into your lives. Before you know it, you will be in bondage once again. Now, the other major story that I skipped over, it was and is the most dramatic maybe troubling incident in the scriptures. Because again, these two are locking heads. We have the battle between good and evil, light and darkness. And this hardening of this evil person's heart, it just won't let them go. And there is something so profound and scary that takes place after the darkness that can be felt. And you know this. Again, it's in the cartoon. But the Lord releases the angel of death to come in and, he, and to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And here's the distinction. The Israelites were no exception. There was no distinction in God's eyes between an Egyptian firstborn child and an Israelite firstborn child. They were the same in God's eyes. And because of sin, because of evil, 
This was God's judgment. Whatever you might think about it, that's what the Bible says. This was God's judgment. But here is the big picture. Here's the major purpose. This is what we need to get. So once again, God provides a sacrifice. He provides a lamb. And in this case, it's a spotless lamb. And it is to be sacrificed for the protection of a family. And they take the lamb's blood and they put it over the doors of every believer's house. And the death angel passed them by, passes over. That's where we get the idea or the celebration of Passover. And Passover is a really important thing to remember. Exodus 12, 26 And I think that this is very important for families to get. When your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? All right, us Gentiles, we're not killing lambs and we're not celebrating Passover. Now we do something just as good, if not better. It's called communion. When we hear of the story of the work that Jesus did on the cross, we need to be able to answer our children when they say, what does this mean to you? So we tell them this is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and they worshiped. And the Israelites did just as the Lord commanded Moses. You know, in our New Testament, it makes it very clear that Jesus is this. He is this Passover lamb. Once again, hearkening back to an altar where someone or something should die and God substitutes it with something else. You and I, we all deserve to die. We all deserve to pay for our sins. But God is so good that he sends his lamb to die in our stead. We see the law, and it is daunting at times. I don't know about you guys, but I've probably broken a few laws this week, at least in my mind. And I can take the book, I can take the law, and I can like make myself feel guilty. I can use will, I can use guilt and try and take care of it, right? I can try and, you know, when I'm looking in the mirror, I, I talked about this illustration last week, when I'm looking in the mirror, seeing everything that's wrong with me, and that's what the, that's what the law does. It shows you everything that's wrong with you. I'm looking in the mirror, I know I've got to get the Sharpie marker off my face, But if I take that mirror off the wall and start washing my face with it, it's not coming off, is it? It is only by the cleansing water of the blood of Jesus that removes every stain that's on you. You can't remove it on your own. It's called works. We need grace. So in your handouts, I've got a few minutes, I'm going to wrap her up. In your handouts, there's a little bit of a typo here, and it's my fault. 
How does God reveal his law? Number one, God, God's law reveals our sin. That's your feeling. God's law is going to reveal what's wrong with you. It's really, if you're not in the word of God, if you're not letting the scriptures speak to you, either very practically or clearly, like don't kill people, or maybe it's in other ways. Let's just check that attitude. Let's check that behavior. This this belief, this way of thinking, is, is, it's actually taking you down a wrong path. If we're not in the Word of God to reveal to us what's wrong with us, then, then we're not going to know that we're in sin. Does that make sense? Do you know this? Do you know this about people who are not in the Word? They're not connected to the body of Christ? They think that their lives are fine. And then you read the Word of God, and it reveals to them that they need grace when they didn't even realize that they needed it. God reveals, God's law reveals our sin. Though through the law we became conscious of our sin, Romans 3.20. Second, God's law reveals our Savior. Okay, so Savior is your fill in there. So you already wrote it down for you. God's law reveals our Savior. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That harkens back to that scripture I read this morning. Oh, you silly Galatians. Don't you realize that Jesus has become the curse, that he is going to be your sacrificial lamb? He is becoming you. He is becoming your sin on the altar so that you can be free. What an incredible deal, everybody. He is the blood on your doorpost that forces the death angel to pass you by, and your family, by the way. Grace is vital to the Christian faith. But so are God's standards. Next one. God's law reveals his standards. So standards is the fill in there. The commandments, this is a New Testament writing, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are all summed up in one command. Do you guys know what this one command is? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And we see we see that theme over and over again in scriptures. God is love, and everything Jesus does is an expression of God's love for us. Jesus goes on to say, I am the fulfillment of the law, and Jesus is love. Oh, man, we are so lucky, folks. We, we, are, we are so lucky So the thing that you need to go home with, the thing that you need to know, the thing that you need to know is that God always has a substitution for you. He always has a substitution for sin. He is more than willing take Isaac's place, to take that lamb's place, 
He does it because He loves us. Although it might be hard in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was so hard, it was so such a dramatic moment. He's literally sweating blood. He finds joy in rescuing you and setting you free. It brings Jesus pleasure to release you from the oppression, the bondage, and the slavery of that man. Amen? It makes him really happy to do that for you. That's the big picture. If I could have the ushers come to the front and the band. Let's pray. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, I thank you for salvation through substitution. Not salvation by works, not salvation by being good, not salvation by the law, but salvation through substitution. And when we grasp what you did for us, may that just motivate us to step up into your standards, Lord. May that be our our sacrifice to you this morning. May may we take the things of our lives and put them on the altar and sacrifice them to you. Pride, greed, lust, fear, anger, rage, our rights to be right, privilege, I mean, we just take all of these things that we think are so important to us and we sacrifice those to you this morning. So we're not playing a game, but we're actually positioning ourselves for you to bless us. And I pray right now you'll show us what it's like to go into the desert and to sacrifice to you and worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray right now you bless this offering, this sacrifice to its full extent that it may continue to bless our community and our people and that it will take people from an eternity without you into an eternity with you. In Christ Jesus, amen.
these individual moments, these God moments with Abraham and Jacob or Moses. They're really cool. But it is clear also in Scripture that God wants to meet with you. He wants to tabernacle with you. He wants to be in your midst in the house of the Lord. I want to encourage you to allow him to do it. He really, really wants to worship with you. And there's blessings that follow worship and sacrifice. So may the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, may he bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, to be gracious to you, to turn towards you in your times of need and trouble. In the midst of crazy seasons, may the Lord give you peace. May he give you rest. And may Jesus set you free. In your name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Peace.